standing with me out of respect for the Word of God. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're going to read verses 4 through 6 this morning. Here is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. And now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects. But the same God who works all things in all persons. May God add His rich blessing to the reading of His Word. Let's ask for His help to understand. Almighty and everlasting God, You govern all things both in heaven and on earth. Mercifully hear the supplications of Your people. And in our time grant us Your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. I think I've shared uh, this with you before, that I really do detest jogging. There's almost nothing more miserable that I do, but I regularly do it, because I need to. It has lots of drawbacks. It's tiresome. It makes your body ache. It's not always pleasant smelling the uh, fumes from the automobiles that are passing by. It's never fun to run up hills. It's exhausting. Let's see, there's all kinds of things about jogging that just make it miserable that I don't like. But there's something about jogging that is an advantage over other forms of of getting to A to B, and that is that as you jog along, you go slowly, number one, at least I do, and number two, you experience the landscape. Uh, There are the sights, there are the sounds, there are the smells, there is a way of experiencing the territory that you are jogging through that's different, let's say, than in an automobile. Because when you drive in an automobile, you don't notice that these hills that really don't look steep, after all, are actually pretty steep and pretty exhausting to to drive over. You don't get to smell things. You don't get to experience things in the same way. You just move rapidly through the area. Now, I just want to build on that analogy because what I want to do is tell you that I'm going to try to fulfill my promise, which I made to you last week as we began our study of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and that is that I want to go slowly through these verses. I want us to go slowly through 1 Corinthians chapter 12 so that we can accurately understand what is going on in these very significant and very unique instructions about the use of spiritual gifts. And I, I, I say that, and I'll just reiterate the point that I made last week, because often in the Reformed churches and Reformed circles, we go over 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14 like somebody who drives an automobile through the place that we might jog through. And we just sort of make a beeline through it. Assuming that we don't really need to understand it, because we usually say, oh, it's all in the past anyway. Why spend our time there? But we remember this is the Word of God. Every word of it has been inspired. Every word of it, we're told by the Apostle Paul, has been written for our good. And therefore, we need to devote ourselves to the understanding of the Word that we will be built up in Jesus Christ as God has revealed this 
for the foundation and edification of our faith. And so with that being said, let's remember we're going through this slowly and this is going to sound a lot more like teaching this morning than preaching, but that's okay. Because you need to understand what God is saying in this very unique and often difficult set of verses. Now having said that, Let's dig into the passage. And as we start with verse 4 this morning, uh, I hope uh, we all see this word in verse 4, translated varieties. I don't know if that's the translation you have in your version, but we need to start there because it signals something that's very important, first of all, and that is the sovereignty of God in the distribution of gifts. Now, That translation, first of all, I'm going to argue is not a good translation. It's not a good translation. I understand why it's used varieties, and I think the reason why it's often translated varieties in our translations is because you'll notice here, for instance, in verse 4, 5, and 6, Paul lists uh, three different kinds of sets of gifts. He talks about charismata, then he talks about ministries in verse 5, and then effects in verse 6, and you'll see that there's a variety of gifts and a variety of categories. And so uh, many translators have taken this route to translate the word varieties because they see variety in the passage. That's really not what's going on here. What the Apostle Paul is actually saying is that there are distributions. There are distributions. That, just to confirm the accuracy of that translation, drop down to verse 11. Where he says, but one and the same Spirit works all things distributing. The same word. The very same word, but it's translated correctly in verse 11 there. And Paul is certainly accenting there the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in distributing gifts to God's people. So let's come back to verse 5 and let's notice here that the Apostle, or verse 4, and the Apostle said, uh, there are distributions of gifts. Now that's very important because you'll notice that that same word appears in 4, 5, and 6, and it's at the outset of the clause. As if the apostle keeps repeating, distributions, distributions, distributions. And then you'll notice in verse 11, he comes back to distributions and he adds to it, to each one individually, just as he wills. And the fact that you have the repetition of that word repeatedly signals that Paul is on to something that's significant for the understanding of spiritual gifts. And this is the point that he's driving home to the Corinthians. That the gifts are sovereignly distributed by the grace of God. Now why would that be an important question? Why would that be something that's important to settle? And the reason why that's important to settle is because there are many people in the church of Corinth who have an exalted sense of self. They have overly inflated egos. And the reason why they have overly inflated egos is because they have to get the tongues. We talked about this last week, that the word tongues appears over and over and over and over again through chapter 12, 13, and 14 as a signal to us that it's a significant issue in Corinth. There's one gift out of maybe 20 gifts, and here the Corinthians are privileging this particular gift, and the people who have this particular gift think of themselves as better, more self-righteous, more important in the sight of God, and more important to the church. 
And somehow they think because they have this gift that they are a special group of people and you can see smugness and pharisaical self-righteousness written all across these people. And so what the Apostle Paul is doing here as he begins to unfold uh, the nature of these spiritual gifts is the very first thing that he does by virtue of the repetition of this word distributions, distributions, distribution, distribution is he's saying to the church you have these gifts not because you are good these are not a reflection of your self-worth what the apostle is saying is that whatever you have in your life you have by the sovereign grace of God the gifts that you have are no different than the possession of your salvation. You didn't get that by works. You didn't get that because of the goodness of your heart. You didn't get that because God know, uh, somehow knew that you were going to cooperate with His grace and, and be a good person. You didn't receive your salvation because there was something in you. You received it by the sovereignty of God and His grace. And he's arguing here the very same thing about the spiritual gifts. You have what you have because God has determined to give it to you. You see, it's, it's puncturing a hole in their self-inflated egos. Very important that we hear the accent of the Apostle this morning. There is not in the church a set of spiritual elites. Whether that's pastors or elders or deacons or even mature Christians. There is not in the church a set of spiritual elite people who by themselves have cultivated some uh, great abilities and they should be revered and looked up to because of who they are. No, what happens is that God sovereignly distributes His gifts and if you have any kind of a gift this morning, you have it because God has sovereignly and graciously given it to you. And whenever uh, the specter of self-righteousness and self-inflated egos and people with an exalted uh, sense of self-worth begins to rise in the church, you begin to have the downfall of the church. You begin to have problems in the church. You begin to have disobedience in the church. You begin to have disunity in the church. You begin to have coldness in the church. And so this morning, as we work our way into this very important section on spiritual gifts, we do so by remembering, first of all, the sovereignty of God and the distribution of spiritual gifts. And that leads us now to the gifts themselves. As we begin to work on this passage, we're just going to take three verses this morning. We're going, to, we're going to take time to look at each one of the categories that the Apostle gives us here this morning because there's much to learn in them. There's much to learn in them. And the very first thing that we're going to look at this morning are the charismata in verse 4. The Apostle Paul says there are varieties of gifts, that is charismata, but the same spirit. And what I'm going to do is lift up that word and examine how it's used in the breadth of the New Testament so we begin to understand the broadness of this idea. Because I think too often when we hear the word gifts or charismata, we think naturally of a very narrow set of gifts. And what I want us to see is that there are three different subcategories, if you will, of this charismata. There are ordinary charismata, there are official charismata, and there are extraordinary charismata. 
Now, with that in mind, let's go back to chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Hope your Bibles are open. We're going to turn to a lot of different places. I don't want this to be wearisome to you. But I do want you to see what God says in His Word. I want to challenge you to think with me as we look at the Scriptures. To see for yourselves the the things that God has revealed. And I want to show you, first of all, an ordinary charismata. Verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, and one in this manner, and another in that. And we don't have to spend a lot of time with this verse, because we looked at it about six months ago. But we do know that the context here is the context of the Apostle Paul talking about sex. Before we start blushing and getting sweaty here, just remember that there were a group of people within the church who were saying it's better not to be married. In fact, they were saying the spiritually elite life is the life of not being married. And if you are married, the next best thing to do is to stop having sex with your spouse because that sort of is an obstacle to true spirituality. And what the Apostle says here in the context is that 100% wrong. That marriage is a gift of God, that it's good, and sex within the bounds of marriage is good. And so he admonishes very strongly here uh, the married people in Corinth to hold this uh, distorted and wrong understanding about sex and marriage to stop depriving each other. But then he says, but if this happens, that either A, you're an adult and you're not married... For B, you've been widowed or divorced, and now you're single. The apostle said, it's better for you to remain as I am. What does he mean by that? He's saying it's better for you to remain single. Now, notice what Paul says about that. He says, each man has his own gift. Charismata. Basically, what the apostle Paul is saying, this ability... To go through life as an adult, to not be married, to not have sex, he says, is a gift. He says, that's a gift from God. In other words, for you to be able to stay in that condition, he is arguing, you need a special gift from God. You say, why would you need a special gift from God for that? And the answer is, because it's just a natural appetite of human beings. God has placed that appetite and that desire for companionship in marriage. It's not wrong. It's not sinful. In fact, we even know that, that God made Eve for Adam while they were in this state of, of uprightness in the garden. But Paul says if you're going to stay in that condition as he is, you have to have a gift. Now, if I can just make an aside here this morning, I think this particular example blows away this concept of the spiritual inventory test for spiritual gifts. You've heard of that, right? It used to be encouraged uh, many years ago that you, you, you need to sit down and you need to evaluate yourself to see what gifts you have so you can serve the church. And, and by the way, it's not a bad idea overall that we would know what our gifts are and how to serve. We're not saying that's a bad idea. What I'm saying is it's, a, it's kind of a ridiculous idea to sit down and take this inventory. But I'll guarantee you, you'll never find this gift on the spiritual inventory checklist. The gift of not being married... And not having sex. Nobody wants that. They avoid it like the plague. Nobody wants that gift. 
But what Paul was saying is if you live that kind of life, you're going to need a gift from God. So I'm just pointing out here, there's an ordinary charismata. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. In 1 Peter chapter 4, you'll see another example of the ordinary charismata. It's really good, by the way, to hear those... uh, those pages turning in your Bible. That's music to the ears of a pastor on Sunday morning. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verse uh, 9 here. The Apostle Paul says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift, employ it. Uh, there's your charismata again. Verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, a special charismata. And I want you to notice what the Apostle considers as... A gift, and it's in verse 9. Be hospitable. Be hospitable. The Apostle is showing us here that in order to be the kind of person who shows hospitality to strangers, you need a gift. You need a special capacity from God. You need a particular grace to be the kind of person who's selfless and who loves people and invites them into your home and clothes them and feeds them and encourages them. That's what this word means. The love of strangers and the love of people and the willingness to share your life with them, to help them, to be an encouragement to them, to promote their their welfare and their needs. Paul says you need a gift for that. That's charismata. That doesn't seem all that extraordinary to us. In fact, many of us might think, well, why is it that we need this? Why is it that we need a special gifting to show that kind of practical love to people? And probably the answer is because we're prone to selfishness. And in order to assist us in this calling to be loving to God's people and to strangers, the Apostle says, here Peter says, that we need this gift from God so that we will give selflessly and lovingly and helpfully to other people. So that's just a sense of how this word is used to refer to the ordinary. Now you can see how Peter uses this, and the apostles in general use this word to refer to the official gift. And it's right here. You don't have to turn anywhere. Because Paul goes on, in verse 11, to point to two different official positions in the church that you need gifting for. Verse 11, he says, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength that God supplies. Here the Apostle points out two official positions in the church. Preaching, the office of the ministry of the word, and then secondly, when he refers to serving, he's referring to the official calling of the office of deacon. He says, whoever speaks, speaks as of the oracles of God. Whoever speaks is to speak in such a way that they're preaching the truth. And he says, in order to do that, you need a charismata. You need a special gift of God in order to prepare you for this calling. This is something that's very important for us this morning to understand even for our own spiritual welfare. Is that the way Jesus Christ has set up His church, He set it up in such a way that there must be people who are officially called to the office of the preaching of the Word of God. You can't grow spiritually apart from that. You can't be built up. You cannot be the Christian that you are called to be apart from God raising up men to fill that office. 
You say, how do you know that, Pastor Sata? Well, I could point to a number of texts this morning, but Acts chapter 6 is one. You remember that great crisis in the early church where uh, there was discrimination going on. Uh, the Hebrew widows who were Christians were receiving uh, the, the vast majority of the portion of the diaconal uh, ministry. And on the other hand, the Grecian widows who were Christians were not receiving hardly anything or nothing at all. And so there became uh, a division within the church. There was, there was all kinds of problems. And so the apostles gathered together uh, God's people and addressed the problem. And they say that there needs to be officially appointed deacons to serve the church. And there are to be officially appointed ministers of the word. The apostles say, we are going to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. What does that underscore is that for the, the body of Christ to be, to be put together properly so that you will be edified, so that Christ will be magnified, so that the church can be what it's supposed to be, a word and sacrament institution that loves God's people and cares for God's people, there have to be offices and there have to be people who are gifted to fulfill those offices. Without that, without that you can't grow spiritually. And so Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 4 says, As you've received a gift of God, employ it, serving one another as good students. Employ it. We must have people in the church who Christ's gifts, both in word and in deed, so that the church will be balanced and healthy and stable in God's people will be cared for. So charismata here can be used in this sense of equipping people for official calling within the church and filling the offices which Christ has instituted. So we we have this ordinary charismata, we have this official charismata, and now we have what I think most of us think of when we think of the charismata, we have the special or the extraordinary uh, gifts such as speaking in tongues and healing. If you turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, you see some of those. They're spelled out, for instance, in verse 10. You have the affecting of miracles and prophecy and distinguishing of spirits and tongues and interpretations. I, I don't want to get into that. We'll get into that next week. But all I'm saying is that now we have this word charismata used to apply to that third category. And I want to point out something here that's very important for our understanding of this particular uh, set of charismata that are poured out on the church. And what is essential to this category is that they had to be mediated to other Christians through the laying on of hands by the apostles. You see, what you have in this other category of the ordinary and the official is that you have God mediating those gifts to His church directly through the Holy Spirit. And now when you come to this particular category of the charismata, what you find in the Word of God is that those are mediated to God's people through the laying on of hands by His apostles. Hebrews chapter 3 talks about how those who heard Jesus testified to His words through signs and wonders and workings. And the sense of that passage is basically this, is that that Jesus Christ deposited in the apostleship 
these extraordinary powers. First Corinthians, rather, Second Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the signs of a true apostle. They, because of their apostleship, had these extraordinary powers. They, they had all of them. They could speak in tongues. They could interpret in tongues. They could heal. Uh, they could affect miracles and signs. But you see, the way those gifts were distributed to God's people was in the laying on of the hands of the apostles. Just listen to some of these passages. By the way, as you listen to those, uh, turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, where you see this confirmed. But just listen with me. Those gifts were distributed through the laying on of hands of the apostles. Acts chapter 19, verse 6 says, And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Notice the connection there. It was only after the Apostle Paul prayed and laid hands upon them, they were able to exercise the extraordinary gifts of tongues and prophecy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, the Apostle says to Timothy, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Something immediately happened through uh, the laying on of hands through Paul. Timothy was gifted. Romans chapter 1 verse 11, the apostle says, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. Galatians chapter 3 verse 5, he says, Who provides you with the spirit and the working of miracles? It's the apostles that were able to do this. Now, with that, those verses in mind, let's look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And this is important. I'm only going into this because this is very important for understanding this particular category of the charismata. They had to come through the laying on of hands of the apostles. And we pick up my argument here uh, back in verse 4 and following. The church has been scattered. It's spreading around uh, Palestine. Now it's going to the city of Samaria and We're told that Philip went down there and he started preaching. And verse 6 says, The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. And as they heard and they saw the signs which he was performing, for in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many were paralyzed and the lame were healed. You see, uh, Philip went down there and began to perform all kinds of signs and wonders and preach the word of God. Now notice in verse 12 the result of all of this. It said, when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. You see, people were, as they experienced the confirmation of the word of God through the signs and wonders and miracles, were beginning to hear the word of God with faith through the power of the Holy Spirit and they're being converted. Now verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard about Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. Now note this. Verse 15. Who came down, prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then verse 17. And then they began laying their hands on them. And they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now what does that mean? 
It cannot mean that they didn't receive the Holy Spirit under regeneration and recreation and salvation because we're just told back in chapter 12 they were responding in faith to the preaching of the Word. And that's the whole reason why the apostles are sent there. You see, what we're learning here from Acts chapter 8 is that these special gifts were imparted to the saints through the laying on of hands by the apostles. The extraordinary gifts of tongues and prophecies and healings, interpretations and miracles and all these various kinds of gifts are mediated through the church by the laying on of hands by apostles. Now my point this morning is not to make the case for why the Reformed have generally held that the miraculous, the supernatural, these extraordinary gifts have passed away. That's not the point this morning. We'll get to that later on. But the beginning of that case is right here. In order to have any of these special gifts that Paul outlines, tongues, prophecies, interpretations of tongues, healings, miracles, so forth and so on, you had to have an apostle lay their hands upon you. And what we know to be an historical fact that's verifiable is that all of the apostles are dead. Right? Paul's not alive. Peter's not alive. John's not alive. Andrew's not alive. Matthias is not alive. None of these people are alive. They all died by the end of the first century. Therefore, they cannot be laying hands upon people anymore. Therefore, the mechanism that God used to distribute the special, supernatural, extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit is gone. And so the question you need to ask for people who claim to have the capacity to prophesy or to speak in tongues is to ask them, which apostle laid their hands on them? Was it Peter? This is a very important point, people of God, because you have, as I said last night, over 600 million people in the world who identify themselves as charismatic now, and I want to know where the apostles are. Where are they? So either somebody is terribly, terribly, terribly misled, confused, and deceived, or we have apostles running around earth that I'm not aware of. That they've been alive for 2,000 years. That's the Word of God. That's how it teaches about these gifts. And so we have these various kinds of gifts. We have the charismata, which are ordinary. We have the ones that are used for official purposes, for service in the church, through the offices of word and, and, and the diaconate. And we have these extraordinary gifts, this category of extraordinary. And those gifts come through the laying on of hands by the apostles. They're not like the other gifts, which are mediated directly by God through the Holy Spirit. So that's verse 4. It only took us a half an hour. We'll go carefully now through the rest of the passage, but a little bit faster. Let's, let's turn back. I think we're in Acts 8, and we need to go back to 1 Corinthians 12. So I'll give you a second to catch up and to catch your breath. I know that's a lot of, I know that's a lot of information, but it's essential information for you to understand what's in the Word of God this morning. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12. That's verse 4. Now we come to verse 5 where the Apostle Paul says there are varieties of ministries. 
There are varieties of ministries. Again, uh, this word is a very elastic word. It's very stretchy. Like this word charismata was that we saw in verse 4, right? It's stretchy. It, it, it can be accommodated to a number of different applications, okay? Ministries. There are varieties of ministry. Literally, uh, diakonom. You can hear in that, obviously, the word we get our word deacon from. There's all kinds of diakonon. There's all kinds of service. And as you look at how this word is used, and we won't trudge our way through the series of texts here, but what we need to understand is that there's different kinds of ministry. Again, there's three different kinds of ministries or diakonons. There's the special diakonons. For instance, this word is used to describe the apostleship. This word is used to describe the apostleship. In Acts chapter 1, verse 17, we're told that Judah, or Judas rather, had participated in the ministry of the apostleship. And then obviously after he committed suicide, they needed to replace him. And so uh, they prayed to God for direction and a decision between Matthias and Barsabbas who should fulfill the ministry of apostleship. So, when we think of ministries here, broadly speaking, we're saying, first of all, it can apply to the apostleship. When we think of ministries, we see also that it can apply, again, to the official offices of the church, both to deacon and to ministers of the Word. This word is used of both ministers and deacons in Acts chapter 6. It can also refer to the work of missions. It's used in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, that refer to missions. The ministry of missions is something that's given by God, an official sense, to those who are called by God through His church to go preach the gospel. But there's also ordinary, or what we might even call practical ministries. That are not attached to offices or apostles or extraordinary situations. It's just simply caring for people. One of the clear uh, verses in this respect is, is Martha who was described as ministering. She was ministering. And how was she ministering? She was, she was preparing a meal for Jesus. You see, just sort of ordinary kind of ministries. The same word is used in 1 Corinthians 16 to refer to the ministry of the saints, which the household of Stephanus did. You get the sense there in 1 Corinthians 16 that this household of Stephanus, which would have included him and his wife and his children and his servants, no doubt, that this family committed itself to serving the saints in the church. You think, what a beautiful idea that there was somebody within the congregation there, at least one, who was known for service. They weren't necessarily known for these privileged uh, what people thought were the more important spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy. There were people who were there within that congregation who just did nothing but devote themselves to help people. It's amazing. Every church needs families like that. Every church needs families who, who are concerned with ministry to the church. That, that, that have the capacity to invite people into their homes. They have the capacity to come alongside people who are new in the faith. They have the capacity to come along people who are discouraged in the faith. They have the capacity to give to people who are in need. 
Every church needs that. I challenge you this morning as you're thinking about your gifts as we're listening to the varieties of ministries or the distributions of ministries. Could it be that your family is a family who's been called to be the kind of family that the Apostle Paul refers to here? This family of Stephanus who loved God's people and helped God's people through practical kindness and service. What I want us to see here when we think about this idea of distributions of ministries or this this stretchy term of ministries and how it applies to so many different situations, I want us to think about this this morning. This is the challenge of God's Word to us this morning as you see these different ways in which ministry is described. It tells us something of the richness of the church. It also tells us something of the essential needs of the church. Uh, For you to be built up in Christ, for you to be encouraged, for you to be energized, for you to be strengthened. The church needs all kinds of people who have all kinds of capacities and all kinds of ability and giftedness to minister so that we're all together built up. It takes a lot of people with a lot of different giftedness. That's how Christ has arranged it. That's how Christ has arranged His church, so that there's not one person who has a corner on spirituality. There's not just one person or one class of people who have the right kind of gifts, and the rest of us are completely dependent upon them. The picture that you get when you hear this idea of varieties of ministries is that we're all in this together. And that we're all needed. We're all needed to help build up the church. I'll come back to that in a moment. Finally, we have in verse 6. I told you we'd move faster. It only took us five minutes. Now we move on to verse 6. Where the Apostle says, There are varieties of effects. There are varieties of effects, but the same God. Well, that word effects there is intergamatone. Intergamatone. And as you listen to that intergamatone, I'm sure you hear what? Energy. Energy. And as you see this word used across the New Testament in a whole different set of circumstances and applications, one thing that you do get from this word is uh, what unifies it all is this sense of it's the underlying force. It's the underlying energy which is responsible for the action that goes on. Used in verse 11, the Holy Spirit is described as the one who's working these things. It's used in Ephesians 1.19 to refer to the power that God unleashed in raising the body of Jesus Christ from the dead. The word there is energy. It's the same word that's used in Philippians 2.13 where the Apostle admonishes the saints who says God is at work in you both to will and to work. For His good pleasure. Work. That energizes. God is the one who is energizing the saints to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Same word used to describe the miraculous signs that were performed at John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 14 verse 2. It's the same word that is used in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. You want to go check this verse out later. But it's a fascinating verse because it says that Paul is rejoicing 
that the preaching of the Word is at work inside the saints, energizing them. Fascinating idea. The assumption behind that is that as the Word of God is unleashed one verse at a time, as it is expounded expositionally in the church, and you walk away and you're thinking about pot roast or football games or uh, what you're going to do on Monday morning or texting your friend or Twittering or whatever it is that you're doing, the fascinating idea that emerges from that passage is while you're doing all of those things, the Word which was just proclaimed to you is energizing you. The Word is energizing you. It's taking up residence in your hearts. And it's influencing you. It's nourishing you. It's uniting you to Jesus Christ. Fascinating work. I know that's the case because the Apostle Paul was saying to those Thessalonians months, maybe even a year after he preached the Word of God to them, he writes back and he says, that same Word that I preached to you is still energizing you. Fascinating. The Word of God is at work. You see, what the Apostle is saying, there are varieties of energies or administrations or applications of that. The empowering. It brings us right back to what you might think is my hobby horse now. Two things. And by the way, we're winding down to conclusions, so stay with me on this. We started the sermon with it, first of all, in terms of the sovereignty and the distribution of gifts. Is that um, God sovereignly distributes the gifts. And then secondly, what we learn from verse 6, is that God sovereignly energizes. You have the gift... But God energizes you to fulfill the duties that come along with having the gift. And and you begin to think about that and this is what it should challenge us to do this morning. Is whatever gift you have and how you use it, and if you use it well, you should never, ever be a prideful person. This should never happen in the church like you have in the situation here at Corinth that Paul is spending so much time to correct where they're privileging a prophecy in tongues and thinking of the people who have those gifts as more exalted, more spiritually significant as if they're the cornerstone of the ministry in Corinth. Become arrogant. They become proud. They have an inflated sense of self. Begin to imagine that, that really everybody should almost be serving them, admiring them, looking up to them, saying, oh, if I could just be like them. It's a superstar ministry mentality. It should never be there, because what Paul was saying, if you have a gift, you have it by sovereign distribution, and if you have a gift, you can't exercise it unless God energizes you. You tell me, where's the room for pride? Where is it? Where's the room for arrogance? Where is it? You ever see a hint of it in Jesus? Think about it. Do you ever get a hint of this at all in the descriptions of Christ and the gospel? That Jesus thought of himself as a ministry superstar. Do you? 
So why is it that the church is full of ministry superheroes? Why is it that there are all these people out there on the landscape today in the church situation who are the rising spiritual church guru superstar? Why is it that there are these designer churches out there, brand name churches out there, who are the new emerging superstar churches? Why is it that there are these designer ministries out there that are the new superstar ministries? And if the truth were told, people are sitting around envious of one another because they're not having the superstar ministry or the superstar pastor or the superstar church and they try to go model what superstar is now. You know, whatever ministry you're given to do, you're given it as a gift. And you're energized to fulfill it as a gift. There's no room for you to worry about headlines. There's no room for you to think of yourself as superstar. The only room there is, is humility. God's given this gift. God's energizing me to fulfill this gift. No room for pride. An admonition to us this morning, if you are gifted and you're using your gifts, don't be proud. Don't be proud. (coughs) Fulfill your office. Fulfill your calling. Use your gift. Yes, to the best of your ability, to the way it's most helpful to God's people. But don't catch yourself being proud. You give thanks to God for using you. That's the attitude we're supposed to have as a church. Well, one point of application this morning, we're done. And uh, you see it here in every verse. Not the gifts, but God. Look at it. Verse 4, 5, and 6. Paul says there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Varieties of ministries, the same Lord. Varieties of effects, the same God. This is a proof text for the Holy Trinity. There's the Holy Spirit. There's the Son. There's the Father. There's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul calls attention to each person of the Trinity. And we know there's not three gods. The Bible emphatically and ambiguously says there's one God, but it says within the one God, there are three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you see it right here. And you see, more importantly, well, I don't say more importantly, but you also see, alongside of that, that the Trinity pours out its gifts upon the church the trinity pours out its gifts upon the church and the model of the service of the trinity towards the church is what we're to follow there's unity and there's diversity there's one God three persons the trinity collectively giving its gifts to the church for the ministry of the church, working within the church so the church would glorify God. And I think the reason why it's been put that way 
is so that Paul comes back to this point again. That within the church, there is to be unity and diversity. God gives gifts to individuals sovereignly. He energizes individuals' sovereignty. And He does that for one purpose. To enhance and to reinforce the unity. To enhance and to reinforce the unity. I don't want to say much more because we're going to see this in great depth in verses 12 through 27. But it's a preparation for it. And it's a challenge to us this morning that our church life is to model and reflect the pattern of the Trinity. There is unity and there is diversity. Whatever God has given you this morning, you rejoice in. And you use that not for self-advantage, but for selfless service to the body of Christ. Let's pray.